Charlotte McConaughey, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Migrations was a big hit for us last year. It was one of our Discover picks, and it's out in paperback now. And your new novel, Once There Were Wolves, has just landed. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. I really don't want to give anything away. I mean, this yes. was this was such a fun read. I mean, yes, there are some dark, serious things, but this was a fun read. I think for people who like The Guest List by Lucy Foley, mm-hmm. there's something here for them. And if you yeah. love Migrations, obviously there's something here <laughs> for you. Like Migrations, Once There Were Wolves has an unforgettable narrator with lots of secrets incredible setting and a terrific cast of supporting characters and a deep connection to the natural world. So how did Once There Were Wolves start for you? It was actually quite a miraculous start for me, this one. It was very different to how Migrations came, which was kind of slow and in pieces. Wolves came in this big rush all at once. I was reading an article about Pando, the trembling giant, which is the oldest and largest living organism on the planet. It's an ancient forest of quaking aspen trees in Utah, except that it's not actually a forest. It's one tree that's connected by this huge root system under the ground. And all the aspen trees are actually genetically identical shoots. And some scientists believe that it could be as old as a million years old. So it's this kind of amazing ancient thing that survived all manner of thing only to now be dying from human impact. And at the bottom of this kind of article, it said in a very offhanded way that a simple, elegant solution to saving this tree would be to reintroduce wolves to the area because as a keystone species, they have an extraordinary impact on their environment and literally have the ability to bring forests back to life. It also mentioned that that would probably never happen in this area because of the local farming and hunting population and a general kind of sense of fear. So in that moment, it kind of all all came into my mind, very formed, that I I wanted to write about a woman who was taking on this project to reintroduce wolves in order to rewild a dying landscape and save something precious. And that should be faced with all kinds of difficulties, mainly the pushback from the locals. I also knew in that moment that there would be a body that would turn up (laughs) and that Inti, who's my main character, would be the one to find it and she would kind of know that her wolves would be blamed for it and so do something really reckless to save the creatures that she loves from being hunted. Was Inti the first character that came to you? Yeah, she was. (laughs) I guess she took a little bit of kind of massaging I kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted her to be a twin because um, I've just always been kind of interested in that kind of beautiful, deep connection that I think some twins share. I knew that I wanted to explore empathy and a lack of empathy. So I knew I wanted to explore that through her. So she would need to represent that in some way, which is how I sort of figured out that I wanted to use this mirror touch synesthesia that she has. And I think I just pieced her together bit by bit. And and she really came to life also when I was writing her. I didn't know initially that she was going to be a woman driven by anger, but she is. And I think that's because a lot of this book for me came or started from a place of real rage about what we're doing to animals, to our planet, but also the harm that we're doing to each other. There's a really kind of strong through line in this book about violence, specifically male violence against women. So Int is kind of a mouthpiece in a way for my own exploration of anger and how you kind of heal from that and move on from that. 
I'm going to come back to mirror touch yes. uh, synesthesia in a second. There's a lot of talk early in the book about how Inti has changed quite a lot by the time we meet her. And she's got a hair trigger temper. She is fearless. She will take on any man, any person who comes after her will. She is not going to stand for it. But she was a much different child. And it does come back to mirror touch synesthesia. Would you explain mirror touch synesthesia and also how that impacted Inti's relationship with Aggie because Aggie doesn't share it. She's her twin. They've never lived apart, but. Yeah, that's the one defining trait they don't share. So mirror touch is a very rare type of synesthesia, which basically Inti, the sensations, the physical sensations that she sees other people experiencing, her brain kind of tells her that she's feeling those sensations herself. So for example, if I had it and I saw someone getting punched in the face, I would actually feel the physical blow on my own cheek. And this is a real, real condition. It's very rare, but I was kind of amazed to learn about it. I mean, it feels like magic in a way. It's this kind of very strange thing. And I I couldn't sort of imagine how much of an impact that would have on a person living with that. It's something that overwhelms her throughout her life. She starts her life as a very open, empathetic, trusting child who sees the best in people. And she sees this condition that she has as a kind of gift of connection. It's a way of her feeling what other people feel, both physically and emotionally. So she's incredibly empathetic to begin with. And and I think that comes a little bit from her father. He's this kind of wild (laughs) um, naturalist who lives in the forest of British Columbia. And he teaches her to kind of always see the best in people. And, And on the flip side of this, she has this very kind of hardened crime detective mother in Sydney, in the urban suburbs of Sydney. And I think the mother is frightened of how vulnerable Inti's condition makes her. So she tries to teach her daughter to be tough at all costs and to protect herself from everything. So she's got these two kind of warring philosophies coming at her. I think instinctively she is her father's daughter, whereas Aggie, her twin sister, is more like her mother, I would say. She becomes the protector. She's very fierce as a child and always wants to kind of make sure that this condition isn't harming her sister. And then, you know, without giving away the kind of climax of the story, something quite traumatic happens to Inti and Aggie and and it results in Inti closing off from this empathy and this compassion that she has. And that's how we meet her at the start of the, the novel. She's furious. She's lost her faith in people. And in a way, she's become the protector of her sister who has in turn become much more fragile. Inti knows more about the wolves than she knows about people. She knows more about the community of wolves and how they behave towards each other. And she knows and recognizes that they feel lonely. And yet she can't see this with people. And in a way, she's becoming a danger to herself. Mm. Yeah, I think she's well, she's not allowing herself to see it anymore. She's, I think she's just had enough, frankly. And I, and I think that was the point that I was at. I was feeling like I'd had enough of witnessing people just doing such damage to each other and being so cruel. And I think there's a real weariness that happens when you start looking at that. And that's what Inti's kind of suffering. And it means that she 
is wanting to escape humanity essentially and just kind of exist within the space of her her wolves, her animals, natural spaces because they they feel safer to her, which is in a way it's ironic because we've kind of grown up being told that the wild is dangerous and wolves are monsters. But I really wanted to flip that in this book and, and actually show that in this story it's the people who are the monsters. You have a lot of compassion for the community that you're describing. Their livelihoods are at stake. We're in rural Scotland. We're in the Highlands. You've got sheep farmers. You've got farmers who have a few head of cattle. These aren't giant ranches where they can absorb the cost of dead animals. These folks are really concerned about what this means for them. And you don't ever set them up to simply be stock characters. You get in there and you talk about who they are and how they're attached to the land as well. And yet Inti is just so damaged that she can't see the other side where if this had happened before Alaska, I think she would have had a different perspective on these people. Yeah, absolutely. So did you know how and where this book was going to end when you started? Or did you simply sit down and say, I've got this voice? I've got this woman. I'm just going to tell a story. Um, I think it was a little bit of both. I always like to have a sense of or what I want the emotional catharsis to be for her and for the readers. And so sometimes you do have to kind of work backwards a little bit and go, okay, well, if that's where I want her to end up, what does she need to be at the start? And that's something that you kind of touched upon, this idea that the damage that's been done to her is actually causing her to be kind of blinded to what she needs to be able to see. And that's kind of a classic character transformation in a way. You need something to change a character. You need them to be confronted with their own flaws and their own blindness. And so I did know where I needed her to start in order for her to kind of end up where she does. The plot was tricky because there's this crime element in it. And I I didn't want the book to be a full-on crime novel. It's more of a hybrid uh, literary novel with crime and mystery elements. (laughs) So I didn't want those crime beats to kind of take over the rest of the book. I wanted them to be strong and and to pull readers through the story, but I also wanted to leave space for the story of the wolves themselves and Inti's kind of character development and her relationships and and the backstory as well, you know, all the things that have led her to be this person. There's a lot of really big and intense emotion in Once There Were Wolves, the way you did in Migrations as well, as we learned Franny's story and the truth of her story. There's a lot of trauma, but ultimately both novels do end on a hopeful note which I really appreciate. You see a significant change in both of these women. But I want to go back to the setting of Once There Were Wolves for a second, because you said something a minute ago that I thought was really interesting. You said you were thinking about this Aspen Grove in Utah, Mm -hmm. and you said wolves help bring forests back to life. Could you tell listeners a little bit about that for folks who don't know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so wolves are as as apex predators. They're known as keystone species, which mean that they have a trickle down effect on all the other animals and plant life in their environment. So, in a simple way, what they do is they will hunt the overpopulated herbivores. 
so deer usually. Deer are the kind of main problem in terms of stopping plants and trees from growing because they eat all the shoots. Um, When they get really overpopulated, they just trample everything and eat everything and nothing can grow. So you actually really need predators in ecosystems in order to kind of move the deer along and let everything else grow. And what this does is it creates opportunities for a whole lot of other animals to kind of return to the environment insects as well birds water tables change so that's why we actually say that wolves can change the course of rivers they just have a really profound impact on the biodiversity of an of an ecosystem so that's one of the big kind of discussion points when we talk about rewilding it's how do we do that how do we return a space to what it was before we kind of ruined it? Um, and one of the ways that we do this often is to reintroduce species that have these kind of amazing impacts on their environments. And Inti's project in the Scottish Highlands, we're told, is approved because there was a similar project in Yellowstone in the United States that's yeah. actually worked. And yeah. One of the local farmers, though, says to Inti, hey, wait a minute, you're talking about the United States and the Scottish Highlands. That's a lot of different space. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he's not wrong. So the question is, how do we make it possible for livestock and wolves to coexist in a community like the one you're writing about? That's the difficulty of the whole issue, I think. In Scotland, they're progressive in terms of their uh, attitudes towards rewilding. They know that they need to do this work. So the conservationists continue to suggest using wolves, bringing them back because there were wolves in Scotland before they all got hunted to extinction. There's a lot of pushback from the locals because the space is a lot smaller. There's far less land and it's very densely populated by agriculture. So this is the big issue that the book kind of tackles. What would happen if you did actually bring a predator like this back into the space? And all my research kind of tells me that it is very possible to do this. Wolves and societies and farming can coexist and we've seen it all over the world in much smaller places. There will be some predation, you know, some livestock will get taken, but mostly not. Wolves tend to hunt their prey, which is they have a prey image and if you're not on that prey image they're not kind of interested in you so they're actually far more interested in the deer than they would be in say a sheep there's almost no kind of danger to people because wolves are extremely shy and family-oriented creatures who are terrified of people and will go out of their way to avoid humans what it comes down to is would we be open to a bit of compromise and a bit of reworking the way that we've done things for a long time. So, you know, there's methods of frightening wolves away from your flock. There's would most likely in a project like this be subsidies from the government. So if you did have a a sheep get killed, you would probably get paid for it. There's a lot of ways to kind of get around the difficulties and there's a lot of benefits of it. But I think the kind of key is education, communication, not sort of blaming and judging each other. And everyone needs to be on the same page about what it actually means. And there are members of this community who understand there's a great scene where Inti goes to the town knitting group. She's been invited. And there are a couple of little old ladies who live there their entire lives. And one of them is very clear. She's like, yep, we need the wolves. Absolutely. We need them back. And there is someone who happens to be the chief of police, who also starts to come around to Inti's point of view. Because initially when she shows up in town, she picks a fight 
with a local and he's not particularly thrilled that she's done this. And it's not really even over the wolves. And yet here's Duncan McTavish, the chief of police. He's making Inti's life a little complicated. She is not expecting to meet this guy. When did Duncan show up for you? Did you know you were going to need a character like this? You could have had a chief of police that was just the chief of police. Yes. Well, I knew right from that first kind of lightning bolt idea hour (laughs) that I wanted her to be having a relationship with someone who she potentially started to suspect could be responsible for this dead body that shows up and how that would actually kind of complicate everything for her. And I liked the idea that one would never quite know if he is a dangerous character to to her or, or if he's just as lovely as he seems. And so I started to think about, all right, well, who is this guy going to be and how is he going to be getting in her way, essentially? And it kind of struck me that if he's the person who's responsible for figuring out you know, what's happened to this, to this body, then they would be really at odds far and above this kind of really intense sexual attraction that they have towards each other. And that would just be something really juicy that I could kind of play with. And this brings us back to all of the big emotion in this book. It's not just Inti. Aggie has stop speaking. She's internalized her rage to a point where she will sign. She has a language with her sister. It sounds like it's a mix of sign language and a twin language, but she only signs to her sister. She doesn't speak verbally anymore. You've got the men and women in this town, some of whom are married to each other. They don't know what to do with their rage and their anger and their disappointment. And then here come the wolves and there's something new to focus on. And then you can start to see where the cracks are. Yeah, this is a book about violence and tenderness, about anger and about healing from anger. I knew that every character in their own way needed to explore that theme in some way. I wanted it to feel varied and nuanced, so they all needed to kind of have their own wounds and their own perspectives on how to survive those wounds. But I really also wanted for there to be space for them to take pleasure from life as well, to find joy, to connect with each other. Because I think even when we are wounded, we find space for that. And it was really important to me that this book be ultimately about healing and about what nature can provide for us in terms of emotional nourishment. And I guess this idea that we can be cruel and unkind and violent towards each other, but our better selves are capable of so much more than that. Inti kind of has to rediscover that over the course of this book, that all the people around her, no matter how flawed, are more capable of tenderness and gentleness and compassion than I think they are the opposite. We just need to kind of allow ourselves to be those things. It's like you've got to feed one of the tigers. And so all of these characters are kind of exploring that in their own rights and realizing, I think, because of Inti and the wolves' arrival here, they're realizing that it's so much more fulfilling and profound to embrace that compassionate side, that empathetic side, than to give in to the selfishness that's so easy on the other side of it. Where does forgiveness fit into Inti's world? Um, 
I don't actually think this is a book about forgiveness. I think some things shouldn't be forgiven. And a lot of what's in this book is, I, I personally think, unforgivable cruelty. So therefore, her journey for me was never going to be about forgiving these, these kind of traumas that she's witnessed and gone through. But it is about finding a different space, finding a way to leave that behind, to allow herself to let go of the anger, to heal, to allow room for trust again. It seems to me that the forest of once there were wolves is very much like the sea in migrations with equal weight, the sea and Franny and the forest and Inti. And it's so wonderful to get caught up in those natural descriptions. But you also just said that once there were wolves sort of came in this mad rush. You had this point, you had this moment where you're like, okay, I'm going to, this is it. I know exactly what I need to do. And yet migrations sort of happened in bits and pieces over time. So can we talk about the difference between writing your first and second novels and what you learned writing migrations that you were able to use in Once There Were Wolves? Yeah, sure. I guess the main difference for me in terms of writing the two books or where they'd come from was that Migrations was my first exploration into writing about nature. It was a book that I think came from a very sad and lonely place. I was feeling devastated by the losses that we can kind of witness happening around us. And so there was real sorrow around that and it was almost like a grieving process writing that book because it is very much about grief. Whereas Wolves for me, I think, was a really fiery thing, you know, and maybe that's why it came much faster. It was sort of like this angry wild thing <laughs> that I was trying to understand and explore and and so it came from a very different place but it's funny both the novels you know have that sort of sense of darkness around them but they also are very much about hope and rediscovery of hope and so you know that will always be something that I will write towards because I don't want to I don't want to instill <laughs> despair in my readers. I want to be able to take people out of that kind of darkness and into a into a brighter space because I think that's really important in terms of energizing us and and helping us to look forward and find ways to solve problems instead of just feeling completely lost within them. But I think probably what I learned from migrations was that it was okay to push my characters even further. I think I think I pushed Inti even further than I pushed Franny in terms of maybe she's not likable, you know, maybe she's she's just this kind of unwieldy beast of a woman <laughs> who people may hate, but I think you have to respect her because she's got incredible drive and she has amazing compassion for the things that she cares about. And I think the joy for me was in writing her as this really angry woman. It was liberating. I loved writing <laughs> this furious woman. And I hope that, you know, a lot of the women who read her will feel that kind of excitement that I had about kind of just allowing her to be savage and ferocious and kind of wild in that way. I had one moment where I yelled at Inti because she said something about her sister. And I'm not going to say it here, but 
She says something about where her relationship is with her sister, and it's about two-thirds of the way through the book. And her sister has changed radically, India has changed radically, and she says something that's clearly her younger self speaking about her sister's role in her life. And I just yelled at her, and I was like, you're missing the point. (laughs) So here I am yelling at a fictional character who's so lost in her own head because of her pain and her trauma and her sister's trauma that I'm yelling at someone for lying to herself, which it's a moment in the story that's really important and readers can discover it for themselves. But um, I know it's frustrating, but I think you have to allow your characters to be the architects of their own demise. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Readers I know of migrations saw a little bit of Moby Dick in Mm -hmm. Franny's story when she's on board ship. What were the influences behind Once There Were Wolves? Well, it's funny you bring up the Moby Dick thing because I actually have never read that book. (laughs) (laughs) But it does get brought up as a a retelling of Moby Dick. (laughs) But that's fine. (laughs) Honestly, it just might be such an American story that the parallels are kind of hard to ignore. So, yeah, what were the literary influences behind Once There Were Wolves? I mean, I think I've always been very influenced by folklore and mythology um growing up I was obsessed with all of that I really loved those ancient beautiful strange stories um and wolves feature quite heavily in them and interestingly they're always the villains (laughs) so (laughs) I guess I'm compelled to sort of write stories about monsters and villains that aren't really the monsters and the villains (laughs) and that probably just came from a childhood of loving mythology. But at the time, a lot of my research was non-fiction accounts from the conservationists who worked, well, on a lot of projects, but specifically, as we've mentioned, the Yellowstone reintroduction project of the 90s. That was hugely influential for me as it kind of taught me about what it's really like to work with wolves, because that's, it's not really something that you can imagine. You've got to really dig into what that means and the difficult decisions that are getting made on a daily basis complex feelings that these scientists have about the animals they're working with and the wolves themselves they're so they have the most distinct wonderful personalities and behaviors that are utterly mysterious and kind of I just found them astonishing and impossible not to love and so I kind of knew that I wanted my wolves to have that level of uniqueness and and in a weird way humanity so some of the titles that came to mind The Decade of the Wolf by Douglas Smith, who was one of the wolf biologists on that original team. Um, The Return of the Wolf to Yellowstone by Thomas McNamee. Um, I really loved The Last Wolf by Jim Crumley, who's a Scottish nature writer. That book's specifically about the idea of returning wolves to Scotland um, where they were hunted to extinction and, you know, how that might look and the kind of longing for that that he has, which I thought was very, very beautiful. The Overstory by Richard Powers was quite a big one for me in terms of seeing things that we take for granted differently and first learning about that beautiful silent language of trees, which was a big thing for me because it became the inspiration for Inti and Aggie's silent language that they have, which kind of reflects that language of the trees and of of the wild and and the language of wolves as well that we can't understand but that does exist. What do you think Inti was taking for granted? Just at any point in the book, I mean, just when you said having a new perspective because of the overstory, there are a couple of different points where Inti has 
in a way, she's taken the community for granted. She has opinions about what they think that don't necessarily match up. She's got some ideas about Stuart, who's a character that readers will meet. She has some ideas about her parents. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, she can be quite judgmental, you know, and a lot of us get into that that space when we, especially when we're talking about this kind of huge issue around conservation versus agriculture. And I think that's one of the main things that she is kind of really blind towards at the, at the start. She kind of is determined to see things her way and she doesn't understand why people don't see things her way. But it's, you know, she has to kind of come to learn the difficulties that these people are, are facing, huge financial pressure. It's funny, I feel like in a lot of ways I am into, but I also have this, this side that's a lot more aware than her because I'm, my dad is a sheep and cattle farmer. So <laughs> I kind of I have a, <laughs> a much more sympathetic view of that. Um, whilst also feeling like this sort of enraged eco-warrior <laughs> at the same time. So I suppose that's a really difficult space to write about because it's fraught with judgment and blame and people not understanding each other. But I guess what I always try to do with my work is come at it with a spirit of togetherness rather than division. So she was always going to have to kind of face what she didn't realise at the start, which is that people aren't necessarily the kind of monsters she thinks they are. They're just trying to make their way in the world as best they can and she's she's better off communicating with them rather than judging them. Inti and Franny are both outsiders and they both like being outsiders and they're a little shocked when they realise that life gets easier with community. Yes, that's a nice way of putting it. What do you think, and this might not even be a question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you think Inti and Franny would have to say to each other if they ever met? <laughs> um, it's such a good question. <laughs> I think they might love each other. <laughs> they might get under each other's skin. <laughs> the funny thing is Franny's someone who is so really lonely and she really wants family and love and connection because it's something that she's never had so she kind of makes a home out of the wilderness and out of nature for lack of a better one whereas Inti is someone who has family and loves loves it you know she's she's not someone who kind of wants to separate from her family but she longs to be more solitary and more apart from society and from other people. So in a, in a sense, I guess, maybe Franny would <laughs> kind of want to tell, shake her, shake some sense into her and kind of say, you know, you need people. We all need people. We need nature, but we also need people. Maybe that would be the main takeaway. <laughs> Is there anything that surprised you while you were writing the new book? Um, I was surprised learning about all about the wolves and about that kind of aspect of it and their incredible impact um, and the essential nature of them. I think I was I was quite fearful throughout writing this book about it being too dark and about it going to spaces that people might not want to be taken. But 
Actually, I think what I've learned is that readers are really brave. They want to be taken to those spaces and shown a way out of them. So I've definitely learned that about my own writing. If it feels instinctively like I need to go there, then I should go there rather than be frightened of it. So what are you working on now? I'm currently working on a book set. It's it's still pretty, it feels fairly early, so I don't know. Well, just briefly, it's okay. um it's the story of a small family of caretakers who look after a sub-Antarctic island and how their lives change when a woman washes up on shore and they don't know who she is or why she's there and there's something quite tense about (laughs) what she might be doing there. And essentially it's a story about what it means to raise children in a dying world and the things that we choose to save and why. That sounds great. I cannot (laughs) wait to read that book. (laughs) What do you want readers to know about Once There Were Wolves? I would like them to know that it is a dark book but a very loving book. It's rich with connection to nature. It's also rich with complex characters and relationships. It's a bit of a page turner. And ultimately I think it's a book about not just rewilding a landscape but also rewilding yourself. That seems like a really good place to stop. Charlotte, thank you so much. Migrations is out now in trade paperback. The new novel is Once There Were Wolves and it published on Tuesday. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was lovely to chat. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 